right, Steve Dunn Podcast. I am joined today by Josh Van Campen. Josh is a plaintiff's employment lawyer, meaning that he represents individuals who are involved in disputes, usually with their employers or their former employers. Josh and I got to know each other as opposing counsel on cases when I was practicing law, and he's gracious enough to use me as a mediator in some of his cases today. He's really good at what he does, and he obtains really good results for his clients. I knew he'd be a good person to talk to about negotiation from the lawyer's perspective. I enjoyed our conversation. Here's Josh Van Campen. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I because, haven't heard that. Yeah, at least within my firm, you know, because that, and I kind of trained my lawyers that way as well, which is that if you know your mediation is going to impasse, you always should be the one to leave. It's kind of like not being left at the altar. And you and to me in a mediation, you always want to if it's if it's not going to settle to leave in a position of strength. Um, and well, so, I can see that. As, and I'm just thinking out loud, like I can think that the reasons to do that would be one, you would emphasize to the other side that you are willing to leave that you're not desperate to sort of settle at any price and you also you would avoid making the last move so you would leave yourself like some room just in terms of dollars is that what you were thinking or are there other factors that go into that thought process and i'm also curious if you are still that way no i'm not still that way anymore because uh, i hire good mediators who don't who don't allow me to leave when you're asking me to stay directly, especially with our history, I'm not going to leave even if I would have with another mediator. Like, so opposing counsels, if they want to settle a case with me, they should hire mediators that I work with a lot because I respect their opinions. I've noticed that there's a fair number of defense attorneys who uh, choose a mediator by going with whoever the plaintiff wants. Is that mm -hmm. your experience? Not anymore. I mean, that, that was for uh, a good long while, but I'd say in the last five years, uh, you know, we may exchange some names, but it's, uh, it's the rare opposing counsel who's now is just saying, uh, just select whoever you want. And I'm hoping that's because they're looking at the case and they're not just saying, oh, we'll just roll the dice, it settles, it doesn't settle. You know, if I pick my case right, they want it to settle, and so they are going to care about the mediator. I didn't mean to suggest that they don't care. Uh, I, I, what, what I took those comments to mean when I've heard them is that they want somebody who's going to have a good rapport with you as mm. the plaintiff and the plaintiff's attorney. Mm. I'm wanting to pick a mediator who's going to influence the defendant. I figure, you know, if I have a good relationship with my client, I can maneuver my own client to numbers that should make sense for them. And we are guilty. Lawyers do bluff a little bit with uh, the mediator, uh, you know, within a certain range <laughs> not, no, not in be, the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars well to be totally clear but, like um, I, it's very I, I think everybody knows like I, I i tell people all the time that everybody's bluffing me all the time uh and that's totally fine and for that reason i think part of the job is not to just accept everything everybody says at face value you know even mm -hmm. like when it comes down to like final offers and stuff like that i'm always just like okay well, all right what oh this is your final offer okay fine that's great <laughs> you know like, I, I i don't i don't mean anything harsh by it i'll just be like okay you know that may not get it done so get ready you know you might have to make another yeah, one don't yeah. you feel like that's conventional wisdom now that with the final offers there's always there at mediation anyway 
<clears throat> there's always a little bigger room. Sometimes it is the final offer. Sometimes it is, right? But at the very least, what it means is that it's an offer that's meant to be taken seriously, that it's a, an offer that's meant to be given due regard that is probably going to end up being in the ballpark of what the true final offer is going to be. So it's a signal at the very least. Whenever I'm negotiating at a mediation, I know that they're just negotiating with the money they have today and, and maybe within a little margin of error that they can get some more authority for but i but i i just i think developed a little bit of an instinct of when these people at the mediation need to go meet and report back to the real decision makers and say look you told it you know this is what our authority was we tried it didn't work and so if you want to avoid the litigation we're going to have to look at a higher number and then that's why i think it's a good practice for the plaintiff when you're going to not accept a last best final to make an offer like you know a customary for me to leave an offer out a week or two weeks um, after that so that then already when they're having the discussion about the fact that their initial strategy didn't work now, now they have a number to address with the real decision makers i think that's a great practice uh, i think in general a lot of what we do is giving each side a target to be shooting at by giving them a target to shoot at, to go back to their people. I think you have a much better chance about actually getting it done that way. And then and then it's a difficult uh, decision for the plaintiff to make too, because by sh you know, you're, you're not giving your last best final offer necessarily with that, but you're certainly giving some intelligence about what number you'd be willing to accept. Right. And if that's a futile endeavor, you've now given the defendant a piece of intelligence, which is, you know, that they didn't earn a mediation. By now I know what, what good faith negotiations look like. And when I don't see good faith negotiations, <clears throat> I get really pissed. Moving backwards. I'm telling you, if you want to settle a case, don't do that because you will end up paying more at the end of the day than if you would have to me. Than now, what you you're referring just... to by moving backwards is where somebody's made an offer, but then later on in the process, either during the same mediation or the next time you get together later on, they lower their offer. They, instead of moving for, like higher toward the resolution that needs to be, they actually take a step back. And, they, and they've always got some rationale for why that's an appropriate thing to do. But a move backwards, it's a trigger. You know, it's a trigger for me. If you're an opposing counsel, the best thing that you can do is be friendly in your opening. More and more lawyers these days seem to not even want to have an opening session at all. As someone who's observed you both in litigation and as a mediator, not every single time, but from time to time, you'll come in with a pretty heavy-duty presentation for the opening session. I wonder sort of what your current thought process is on that. So <clears throat> we always give an opening statement. I'm always going to say nice things about my client. And when I introduce my client to the mediator, I also introduce the defendant to the mediator. And I find something nice to say about the defendant. In doing that, to me, I'm, I'm adding credibility. Sometimes there are some points that I should concede. The purpose is to have an effect on the defendant. And that's why, you know, you know, in my openings, I spend at least five minutes talking about my client. And I start from birth. Or sometimes I talk about my client's parents before them. And so I'm introducing uh, the plaintiff in a way that even a manager who fired that plaintiff didn't know that person. And so now when you're going in and talking about a resolution, 
they may have learned something really compelling about my client's history, or they may come to actually like my client or to like my client's family. Um, and I think that allows them to, instead of thinking like, well, we're admitting guilt by paying this sum of money, <clears throat> now they're looking as an opportunity to help someone. I can try to invoke that feeling from uh, the defendant sitting in the room during my opening. I mean, ultimately, everybody that's sitting around a table like this one, we're, we're all people. You know, we all have families. We've had good days and bad days. We've had experienced some joy and heartache and everything in between. Um, and, and empathy. So I understand that there are certainly business people, right? They're not, they're not there as a person. They're there as a corporate representative. I still think that if I'm effective in introducing my client uh, in a way in which my client is sympathetic or likable, um, and if I am likable, and if I have credibility, I believe that that corporate representative will be more prone to settle the case than if I'm, let's just say I'm cold, yeah. I'm surgical, I'm academic. Getting back to the opening statement issue, um, you know, we talked about, you know, me giving an opening statement as a plaintiff's lawyer. With defense counsel, what I'm learning is anytime I have an out-of-town um, defense counsel, it seems like the default everywhere else is not to give an opening. Yeah. Um, whereas I, at least in Charlotte or my experience in North Carolina, the default is to still give openings. Um, and so if I was giving advice to opposing counsel about whether or not to give an opening, I would say always give an opening because, well, number one, as the plaintiff's lawyer, I don't want to lose. So if you've got some information that will sow, sow doubt in my confidence in my case, you're smart to share that. The current mode of thinking is don't do it in an opening. Let the mediator, you know, be the conduit for that, that information. But I think if the opposing counsel can do it the right way, it's very effective. There's these things that you can say that cost nothing but have monetary value. Yeah. For example, the company that people that I've talked to at the company acknowledge that, you know, you, you did make a lot of really valuable right. contributions to the company. And everybody acknowledges that. Yeah. Or, you know, we know that losing a job is hard. And we're not saying that what you feel isn't, isn't valid, that that's what you've experienced. But let me tell you, you know, what we think really happened. I would always say that I don't question whether you believe what you're saying. Like I, right. I, I think you do believe it. On the question of openings, whenever somebody explains to me why they don't want to do it, it's usually because they think that the other side is going to be inflammatory and it's just going to set us back. Or they're concerned that the other side is going to perceive them as inflammatory and that's just going to set us back and to that i say well then don't be inflammatory right? <laughs> i got your answer you know right. just don't do it now having said that i have a i have a bias in favor of doing openings but i've lived to regret it on several occasions i mean mm -hmm. there have been plenty of times when i've made my flowery speech and then i turn it over to the parties and they just launch into their grievances discovery abuses and spoliation and you know that we're going to do this and we're going to do that and i certainly have cringed my way through a lot of openings and wish that we weren't doing it but i would say it's one of those things where yeah it can set you back but when it's done well it can it can really help you a lot i think most lawyers can't do it well 
cannot uh, cannot do it well yeah so maybe that's why that's an argument not to do it right like you want to do it no it, you can get good at it yeah but you have yeah. you have to do it i mean i i've noticed like for me the evolution of my opening statements from when i started in north carolina in 04 through today you wouldn't even you would think it was a different lawyer right you you just um you learn what works yeah and like for me i know that i can't i'm trying to get the company to voluntarily write a check right if i'm an asshole or if i insult them in my opening they're going to be less likely to do that i'm really intrigued by your observation that you can get better at doing an opening in mediation and i think that that's correct and i think that that's true of so many aspects of legal work. One of the things I've been trying to figure out lately is the extent to which somebody can get good at being a mediator versus the extent to which it is a personality-driven type mm. of skill. As somebody who, over a long period of time, has worked with a lot of the best mediators around, sort of what what you notice are the the common threads that make the good ones good and for that matter we might as well tell some stories about some terrible experiences that we've had right you know i at my first my first thought was it's a natural disposition like uh that you're born to it like with you you know i i think that that's the case um but then i'm thinking about other other mediators like jonathan harkavy he i wouldn't say that you know mr harkavy's strength is his emotional connection with the plaintiff. I think it's more the tactician. I think the best mediators do both. The best mediators have the versatility of being able to be a different mediator, even at different times during the day. I don't know how you guys do it. The notion that, you know, you're, cause you're a different mediator in the plaintiff's room than you are in the defendant room too. Um, and, and the versatility to be having all these balls in the air and, and your approach and, and, you know, all in a day, it's a really challenging, uh, job. It is challenging. It's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be when I first started. I think I, like a lot of lawyers thought that it wasn't that hard, like that, that it wasn't hard compared to being a lawyer, right. but it, it, and it, and there's a lot, there is some truth to that. It's, it's easier than being a lawyer in the sense that you don't have ongoing responsibility for cases. So, uh, that's one of the hardest parts about being a lawyer, in my view, is 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 being responsible for a case for months, years, uh, and th that's very difficult. Um, and we we as mediators don't have that. But w what I like in mediation too, as a lawyer, is it's sort of like a deposition day or a trial day. It's sort of it's sort of like being in trial all the time <laughs> because mm. there's no breaks. There's it's hard it's hard like br it's heavy brain work the whole day through with no breaks. And, um, and it's, so it's intense, you know, as a lawyer, I would spend, I could, you know, surf the web, you know, make a phone call, send an email or whatever, you know, go to <laughs> lunch, you know, yeah. and like, but I, I had a lot of chill sort of time sort of baked into the day where you don't really have that as a meteor. So it's intense in the moment. Um, uh, but I, you know, it's, I'm glad you bring up Harkavy because he's very well respected and well known as being among the best of the best in North Carolina for sure. Mm -hmm. I only worked with him once and I thought he was great. I mean, I, I thought he was amazing and he did settle the case that we had, but you're absolutely right that he's got a different personality for sure. And I think back now on observations, uh, getting certified as a mediator, you have to do observations of mediators. And I did my own 
for civil court cases years and years ago. But then I actually got certified as a family law mediator uh, just a few years ago. And I had the opportunity to, d- I w- to do observations of family law mediators. And it was great for me as an experienced mediator to observe mediations. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's one thing to do it as somebody who's never mediated a case before. It's a completely different thing to do it as somebody who's mediated hundreds of cases, right? And so I had this wonderful opportunity to do it. And what I clearly learned from that is that different people have totally different approaches. Like I'm, I'm a guy who comes in smiling, joking, waving my arms around, high energy, trying to keep it light and all that kind of stuff, kind of glad handing everybody, you know, in, in a way. And there are people that are much more reserved, uh, much more quiet, soft spoken, mm-hmm. but devastatingly effective as mediators as well. One of the guys I observed was like this. And I think that's that's probably the deal with Harkavy. I think probably the key with him is that he is being who he is. But I think with Harkavy and, and those in that ilk, it's um, like he earned the gravitas and the respect that he gets from the lawyers. Um, and so may, maybe th- maybe that's what it is in a way. So when when Harkavy is is telling you, you know, and he's 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 he knows more about employment law than I'm ever going to know, um, is telling me that I've got a problem in my case. I got a problem in my case. You know, the other thought that I had about, you know, mediation, um, what makes a mediation successful or not, I think is really the speed in which the the offers go back and forth are really, really important too. Sometimes even more than the information. Like to me, I'd rather have a little less information and a more prompt offer. I've observed you keeping track of the time. Uh, Do you still do that? Yeah, Julie Fossbinder. Um, who taught me a lot of things yeah. uh, was to time the offers. And so then, you know, I've, I've done that sometimes with you too. I'm like, well, they were, you were up there for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another thing. As I reflect on my own practice and my own approach, that's another thing that I think about sometimes is whether I'm taking too long. I don't feel like I waste time, but I do know that I take a lot of time. If you're going to take a long time, I need to be able to come back over and say, look, that took a long time. But I think it was time well spent, and here's why, and here's what I've heard. You know, either I, and sometimes it's good news, and sometimes it's bad news. Sometimes the good news is they were on the phone for a long time with somebody back at the home office. Well, and I've and, seen you drop in and say, yeah. you know, I know it's been a long time, right. but I'm getting kicked out, and they're making phone calls. Like the mediator should do that. It should, we shouldn't have this long duration without a, without a check in. I tend to think that the thing goes in in phases and a lot of times getting I call it pulling the train out of the station like a lot of times it takes a lot of energy and time to pull the train out of the station whereas once the train is on its way it's got its own momentum and it can travel a lot further and faster with the same amount of energy and so for example a lot of times you'll get to a phase where the pace moves really fast and sometimes that itself will become a little bit of a joke amongst everybody where it's like I'll just run down the hall and I'll say this is what they did and then the you know your room will they you knew that's what they were going to do and you are already locked and loaded with your next number and then I'll run back down the hall and say this is what they did and they know that that's what you were going to do and then we go back and forth like playing ping pong really quick and I find that those phases are very productive like that's where because not only are you narrowing the gap with uh quickness you're also you're communicating with each other you're relating with each other like everybody knows like 
Every, okay, I know what you're doing. You know what I'm doing. We're choosing to keep doing this thing that we all know that we're doing. That mm-hmm. itself uh, creates a momentum toward settlement. And I think when when that happens in a mediation, it's often a really good sign for getting where you're going. And I think that's a, mi- a missed opportunity with most most mediators. I, I think what, when what you just described these rapid fire offers, I I'm pretty sure every one of the cases that I've had where it was like that, we we got it done. So I have another another methodology with mediation is um, reward good behavior, yeah. good behavior. Yes. And I think opposing counsels miss opportunities uh, to do that. And sometimes I'm working in conjunction with you, the mediator, to try to get my client to be more reasonable. Right. And and we and we and we secure a good move down. Maybe not what they wanted, but a good move down. And when they respond with just like a $10,000 increase. Or just the same thing that they were doing before. Yeah, or just the same increment of a move. It's a wasted opportunity. And I think think opposing counsel fail to appreciate the importance of momentum. I mean, it's my job to manage the plaintiff's settlement expectations. And sometimes I just need some help from my opposing counsel uh, with moves that demonstrate a good faith. I'm curious how you prepare yourself mentally for the mediation in terms of thinking about the way you value the case, about how you prepare your client for the mediation in terms of how the client you think ought to be, and you've alluded to the fact that there's not always perfect symmetry there in terms of how you're valuing it versus how your client is valuing it. So we have a a, a mediation prep session that usually lasts a couple of hours, and, and we'll definitely talk about numbers. Now, um, where I need to be careful is beating up my client on a goal that they want to start the mediation with. And so usually I will say, and it, it is my job to try to hit their goal. And, I w- and I'll say, okay, well, so this is, this is your goal. And I'm not asking for what's the least you would, you would accept, but you know, like a reasonable goal. And then I'll, I'll structure a starting position to try to hit the client's goal. But I'm, I'm saying, look, I'm going to do my best, but I need you to arrive at mediation, understanding that that may not happen. And we need to listen to the mediator and we need to listen to opposing counsel's opening. We may need to rethink these numbers. And so I'll give some ground with my client as we're identifying the goal. Um, and then in the course of the day um, and why mediator selection is so important is that I only have so much ammunition to beat up my own client before I lose credibility. Um, and I need to use it judiciously. Um, and, and that's why I don't use it up before the mediation even starts. I kind of allow them to, you know, identify a goal and say, I'm going to try to hit it. And then hopefully we do. Usually we don't. And then, uh, and then, and then talking. I like that a lot. I like, I like the fact that you prepare your client for the fact that you're gonna have a tough conversation about that goal at the mediation. You let them know that that's going to happen, but you don't try to do it before the day of. I think right. that that's a, the, I, I've, I've never heard it put exactly that way before, but I really like that approach because you don't, the way you put it is you, you don't use up all your ammunition in advance, but you also are not uh, pulling the rug out from under them on the day. Like they knew that you're going to have this hard conversation and you can remind them if, if they need to be reminded. <laughs> Remember, we, I told you right. we, we were going to have a hard conversation and this, we're having it now. This is what it feels like to mm-hmm. have it. The question I have for you is about um, 
walking away. How do you know that it's time to make that decision? I am trying to determine pretty early whether or not the mediation is going to be successful. And eventually, just like you, you know, you develop a nose for it. But when I'm working with a mediator who, who I respect like you, um, and you say, and you have said this <laughs> to me several times, okay. um, you know, don't, don't give up, you know, it's early or, you know, uh, just, I got a good feeling about this or whatever. Yeah. The question about how much to share, how much to reveal, uh, during mediation. I, I don't know. I, I think lawyers a lot of times think that that there are secrets and that there's things that aren't known or that won't become known mm -hmm. or that they want to orchestrate the way and the moment in which something becomes known. And mm -hmm. I tend to think that a lot of times they're overestimating the importance of that. A lot of times, a lot mm -hmm. of like recorded conversations are a perfect example of this. If you have a recording and the other side doesn't know that you have a recording, you know, like sometimes mm -hmm. we'll have this conversation about, like, well, are we going to roll this out? Are we going to save this? We're going to confront them with it. And I would say a good nine times out of 10, the recording is not quite as gangbusters as, <laughs> as the person thinks it is. Like they think it's like this smoking. No, that gun happens thing. 10 out of 10. Okay. All right. I'm glad that you clients. say that. I'm, yeah. I'm happy that you feel that way because like a lot of, I mean, a lot of times I'll, I've been hearing about this recording all day and then the moment comes where I actually listen to the recording and I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I mean, <laughs> he didn't exactly say. <laughs> right. Yeah. In my opening statements, I, I say that there are a lot of lawyers that keep uh, or hold the cards close to the vest. No, I'm not one of them. Yeah. You know, and, the, and then I, and then I give a very, you know, transparent opening and that's, and that's what I want from opposing counsel. Just kind of getting back to the opening statement issue is just understand that the, the plaintiff lawyer wants to win, needs to win. So does his client. And if you want to get your case settled for your client defense counsel, um, and you've got something I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold back those those cards. Josh, listen, it's been a fascinating conversation and I can't thank you enough for coming and being here. Oh yeah, no, it's an honor. Happy to be here. Thank you.